Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor of family and discipleship here at Cross Point Church. And that was a mysterious video. And so, so mysterious, a bonfire, so many things happening in that. But it, it, we'll, we'll come back to it later. Um, but that's one of the realities is that, you know, there are certain things. Whoa, got a new case. And so this is my first time preaching with this case. So let's see if this works at all, or if I throw it into a bonfire like that. No. Um, there are things that are simply a mystery in life that we, we know a little bit about, we understand a little bit about, but at the end of the day, we just don't fully comprehend. We can't wrap our mind totally around it. And friendship is one of those things. Friendship is something that's, you know, we, we think we understand how it works, but, but do we? Do we actually understand perfectly how it functions and how it accomplishes the things that we need? And when it comes to the series and healing broken relationships, friendship, it just does it. It just, it just works. It just gets it done. Before, before I came up to, to preach to you, I was standing there worshiping the Lord and um, really enjoying myself and, and feeling the presence of the Spirit. And my brother, Phil, leaned over. And I'm like, ah, Phil, how will you fill my heart with the joy of the Lord in this moment? And Phil puts his arm around me. Let's say the stand is me and I'm Phil his arm around me. He asked me a question. He says, Scott, do you play any musical instruments? <laughs> it's not the best part. And, and I'm like, why? Well, I'm singing. I'm like, oh, oh. He would have been to my right. I'm like, no, no, Phil. No, I don't. He looks at me and he says, he didn't say this part, but I, this is what I thought he would say. Is, well, how many re- instruments does Hannah play? She was playing keyboard up there. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, like two, two, maybe three sometimes. I think you played a third. He's like, wow, you're really inadequate. <laughs> I don't think inadequate was the word. Um, you married up, you... Um, What's your problem? Why are you so bad at the things that you do? Um, and, you know, some people would see that and say, good luck preaching after that, Scott. Um, you're bad, and your wife is amazing. And how'd you make that happen? Must have been Jesus. But so my, my point is that, is that that is an example of friendship. But how does that work? How does that happen? How can me and Phil be united in something other than our baldness and have a strong friendship? And the reality is revealed in the verse that was at the end of the message. And the verse that was at the end, we're actually going to start a little bit earlier. And this is the... This is a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of a a kind of trilogy. It's Solomon's trilogy. Solomon was the king of Israel who was who the Lord asked, what do you want? And Solomon wanted wisdom. He wanted wisdom to lead the people. So God gave him wisdom and gave him everything else. So the first thing that Solomon wrote was 
a great song. He wrote the Song of Songs. It's a romantic song. It was a number one hit. Think combination Justin Timberlake, Marvin Gaye, PG-13. So he wrote this song. After he finished the song, he started collecting wisdom for the people. He wrote out proverb after proverb after proverb after proverb until he had this huge book. And then he decided, that's great. I'm just going to do whatever I want now. And he went away from wisdom, and for some reason in his folly, he pursued every sin, every lifestyle choice, everything he could do, Solomon pursued, until he got to the end of all of his pursuit and said all of that was nothing. It was vanity. It was dust. And he's sitting there in the sorrow of realizing that everything before him was nothing, And he writes Ecclesiastes in a poetic style of reflection and bitterness and And that's where we're going. So hooray, we get to go to Ecclesiastes right now. Ecclesiastes is so important. It's so beneficial. But you have to know where it comes from and why it was written. It comes from a man who had done everything and found nothing and realized that everything could be found in God and he couldn't find everything in the world. And so he writes... He starts off before the verse we saw in 4, 7 through 12. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. Either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for why am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity an unhappy business. What he's talking about there is a person who's working and working and working and acquiring money and getting a great 401k and having an IRA and having their pension all set up and building homes and getting toys and all this stuff. And he has no one, no family, no friends, no children, No parents, everything. He is the sum of his possessions, and the sum equals zero. Solomon continues. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. And has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Next slide. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, two are better than one. There is help in another person. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Yes, Solomon, thank you. That is how you heal broken relationships. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. And thank you that you are good and loving God. Amen. If, if I would continue with that joke, I, I'm afraid that people would take it too seriously, but I was going to pretend to walk off stage. But we're doing communion, and I didn't want to get anybody like 
fearful and start to scramble. But really, that's a, that's a, um, a text that doesn't need preaching because it just tells you, just tells you the truth straight up. You need someone else. If you want to heal from a broken relationship, you need someone else. You cannot do this alone. Alone is your worst enemy. You need someone to help you. This sermon could have been a record time. I was really, I was really banking on getting that record time for sermons at Cross Point Church, but it's not going to be. Because we want to understand friendship and how it heals us. But friendship is only best understood through the telling of story. You can't just develop a system to understand friendship. I can't give you a three-point plan for how you can heal from broken relationships by developing a friendship with this style of person, with this goal, and with this strategy. Like, that's not going to work. The best way to understand it is through story. So I'm going to tell you a story. And this story is about a young man named David. David would be the king of Israel. David would be the one that would see the flourishing of the nation. David was a man after God's own heart. David was chosen. And David was a man of friends. David had two major friends in his life. Friends who cared about him, friends who loved him, friends who were with him. But to understand his friends, you have to understand the time. David, in his life, was a part of a nation who was at war. They were at war with these people named the Philistines. And the Philistines were strong. At the time, Saul was the king of Israel. And he was a king that Israel deserved. A king who was like the nation. A king who was strong, but flawed. A king who was disobedient. A king who wasn't a great thinker. And a king who put himself and his activity before God. David loved his king. And he loved his country. And he was devoted, even as a young man, he was devoted to what his nation was doing. So much so that his devotion is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible. David loved and was so devoted that one of the stories we know so well started because he heard somebody mocking his country. He heard somebody mocking his king. He heard a giant saying that God was nothing. And even though he was a child, he went and stood up to Goliath with a sling and stones and put down the champion, the strongest person in the nation of of the Philistines, David was the one that put him down. And because of that, he formed two friendships. And in 1 Samuel 18, the whole story of David you can read in 1 Samuel. But in 1 Samuel 18, it describes this friendship. And it says, as soon as he, this is David, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, 
King Saul, the soul of Jonathan, the prince, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave him to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David connected with Saul, the king, so much so that David was brought into his own house and so much so that he was trusted with everything. He was trusted with his men. He was trusted with his armies. This boy comes out of nowhere and is the champion and the hero of Israel. Not only is he befriended to Saul, but he is befriended to Jonathan, the priest, the poster boy of Israel. Everyone loved Jonathan. He was beloved of the armies. He was beloved of the nation. When you think of Prince Charming, it's Jonathan. He was the total package and the whole nation was expectant that after Saul, we have a magnificent king in Jonathan. And Jonathan is such a friend to David, he lays everything in front of him. He says, you can have my robes, you can have my weapons, I am devoted to you, I am making a covenant with you, I trust you so much. My soul is knit to you. We will always be friends. But wait, who was Saul? He's the king. He's the king, right? He is, but he is flawed. He was so flawed, in fact, he had made three huge mistakes before David even arrived. He tried to have his son killed because of his foolishness. Well, he nearly had his son killed because of his foolishness. He offered his own sacrifices when he wasn't supposed to because that was reserved for the priests. And at one point, he so disregarded the Lord's commands that when he was questioned about what God expected of him, his response was, I think my way's better. And so the prophet Samuel tells him that he's not going to be king for very long. And so much so, he tells them that the kingdom is not only going to be torn from his hands, but it'll be torn from his son's hands. And it's going to be given to another person, a neighbor, which Saul would take as someone close to you. And so this is Saul. And that's his, that's what he's dealing with. That's what he's carrying. That's his burden. And by the way, David was that next king. In secret, Samuel had anointed him to be king. In secret, Samuel had brought David and said, you are going to be the next king. And that was a secret that David would carry. It's a secret he would carry. He would go forth in these friendships knowing that I'm supposed to be the next king. And yet, and yet, he loved and was so devoted to Saul. 
Well, that's, that's, that's Saul. But then, who, okay, who, who is Jonathan? He's the prince. He's the poster boy. He's everything the nation has ever wanted. He's brave. He's a mighty warrior. He's loyal. The people love him. Jonathan was by David's side. <laughs> the whole time, the rest of his life, after Jonathan covenanted with David and said, I am with you, I am with you. Jonathan portrayed loyalty and sacrifice in a way that there, there's no better display of it than Jesus. Nothing comes close to understanding true friendship than Jonathan. So these two powerful, and Jonathan was the next king, supposedly. In Saul's eyes, Jonathan was the next king. King, that these two powerful, mighty friends of David made me ask a question. When did they know? If David has a secret of that he's going to be king, when did Saul and Jonathan find out? Because that's a big secret. Friendships, they have secrets. Friendships, they have things that we feel like we have to hide from one another. We're too fearful to be vulnerable. We're too afraid of what the cost of that secret is going to do. What is that secret going to mean to Saul? As far as we should expect, it would mean that Saul would start killing David, or at least seeking to kill David. So can we tell when Saul figured it out? We can get a good idea. Because Saul started throwing spears at David. Like we're just, they're, they're hanging out in Saul's house. And Saul is playing the harp because they didn't have pianos. Saul's playing the harp to try and calm Saul down and give him a good rest and help him to settle down. And Saul throws a spear at David. Just tries to pin him against the wall with a spear. And he misses. So he gets another spear and tries again. And I'm pretty sure at that point David thought... He must not like that song. Like, what's going, what's going on? But what had happened is that a song had spread throughout Israel. And that song said, Saul has killed his thousands, and David's killed his ten thousands. And Saul heard that. Not only jealousy, but reality set in. Here is a person with God on their side. He must be the one. And when Saul figured that out, his whole life was dedicated to killing David. Over and over, choice after choice, he tries to get David married to one of his daughters, succeeds in getting him married to one of the daughters with the sole hope that it would ruin David's relationship with God. He picks a daughter that knows has a problem with idolatry, has a problem with religion, and puts that daughter in relationship with David for the sole pur purpose of trying to cause David to stumble and hopefully die. He puts him in battles that he knows are hard, puts him in positions saying, man, I hope this kills David this time. Over and over and over, Saul goes from being so close to David to saying, let's let him die. So we think we know when Saul knows. But what about Jonathan? We have clarity in one verse. We have clarity in 1 Samuel 20. 
And this is a verse that talks about him actually realizing Saul's purpose. Everything else up to that point, Jonathan was thinking was an accident, thinking was just strategy and planning. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan asks for things from David, and this is what it reads. But should it please my father to do you harm, Jonathan referencing Saul, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. We read that and say, whew, that sounds delightful. This is Jonathan showing how good of a friend he is. Because what he's saying is as he's realizing, now he might have known for a while, but he knows for sure right here. As he's realizing that David is going to be king, Jonathan looks at himself. And he says, I'm the prince. I'm beloved of the nation. I am a strong warrior. These are all the things I am And here's the reality. I'm dead. I'm dead. Because what I represent is a rival. What I represent is someone who is going to get in the way of your kingdom. What I represent is someone who should be causing a coup or causing a problem. So the only way that you probably would deal with the problem of me and my father's kingdom is to kill me. So I am going to protect you. I am going to show my friendship and my love for you for the rest of my life by dying right now. Trusting you and dying right now to my desires, my hopes, my dreams, and putting you, David, first. And this is what I ask of you. This is all Jonathan asks. Don't kill me. Don't kill my family. David, my goodness, David does that. He's so, from this and from the relationship with Jonathan, he not only protects Jonathan, he protects Saul over and over. David sacrifices and puts himself in positions where he says, I will die going forward if I don't take care of this problem. And David says, I trust God more than my thoughts and my plans, and I'm going to protect Saul because he is the Lord's anointed one, and I'm going to protect Jonathan because I love him and I am devoted to him. In fact, after Jonathan dies, and it's such a sad story, and even in his death, David shows his loyalty, but after all of that, Jonathan leaves behind just a few children. One of them is is crippled in his feet, And David's delight is to constantly protect and love this child, this adult. That's Jonathan's child. He is a son to me as well. Now, all that story to ask this question, what's the point? What's the point of the story? And it's this. A Jonathan-esque friendship will always put the other person first. 
the only friendship that can lead to healing broken relationships is Jonathan-esque friendships. Friendships that involve one person dying to self for the goal of healing and restoring the other. It is sacrificial. It is hard. And that's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's about helping and supporting each other. But to support and help each other, someone has to do the bearing of the burden at times. And Jonathan bears the burden at first, so David could bear the burden in the future. Which leads me to ask, who are your Jonathans? Now I have some more. We go back to that previous slide. There's probably some clearer things I say there. Okay, I said all that. Um, Who are your Jonathans? I've had two amazing, I've had many Jonathans in my life, but two of the most amazing Jonathans in my life, two of the most sacrificial friendships I've had were my brothers. My brothers. We grew up in the country. I did not have a lot of friends that weren't arranged friendships. Think arranged marriage, but with friendship and my mom's planning. And so those friendships were always for the betterment of hopefully me, but usually the other naughty child, because I was um, terrified of everything in life and semi-good. Manipulative would be the good word. But so I grew friendships with my brothers throughout the year. One's 11 years older than me and one's six years older than me. And they're my closest friends. They probably would hate to say that. They'd probably say, what? Um, But the reality is that every friendship I have is slightly broken because they set the bar too high. I can't, it's hard to measure friendships when it's been set so high by two men. And the reason that they have been Jonathans is because at my weakest, at my hardest moment, they sacrificed. When I was 19, when I was in my darkest place, they sacrificed. Chuck, the oldest, was there. Chuck's stoic, Chuck's wise, Chuck's solid, he's thoughtful, he's strong, he's a family man. His qu- the quickest way to his heart is through a baby. But Chuck was resilient and he was there. I didn't have hour-long conversations with him. But he hired me. He kept me working. He made me carpool with him. I had no choice. He made me listen to his music. Yet again, I had no choice. And subsequently, he orchestrated the means for which God awoken me to Jesus Christ. Because if he hadn't kept playing David Crowder band over and over, I wouldn't have heard the song Heaven Came Down. And if I hadn't heard the song Heaven Came Down, I wouldn't have understood the gospel. I wouldn't have understood the reality that is one of the phrases in it, which says, Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away and my night was bright as day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. What it's talking about is the fact that Christ stepped down from heaven, entered into earth for the purpose of our redemption. And I wouldn't have known that if we weren't sitting at a nursery 
to pick out trees and flowers and shrubs for the 12th time that summer, and he left me in the car like he had done thousands of times before being the older brother, and I had to sit there listening to his music because there was nothing else in the car until that moment when the light shined through the window, hit my eyes, and I heard that verse and understood it. That was the product of friendship. And Eddie was the same. Don't let Chuck take all the glory. Eddie is talkative, he's smart, he's adaptive, he's probing, and he is relatable. No one will talk to you better than Eddie does. No one. Eddie will make you, ah, cry. Eddie. Oh, Eddie, man. Eddie can make anybody open up. Make anybody feel welcome. Make anybody feel loved. And when I didn't feel any of that, Eddie was there. Eddie invited me to connect with his friends. Eddie invited me to spend time with him. And by the way, at that time, things weren't perfect in Chuck and Chrissy's marriage. They had four kids. They were dealing with stuff. They were figuring things out. They were going through hardship. But Chuck took the time. In that time, I was going to say it, Eddie and Amanda were struggling with infertility. They had had some miscarriages and they wanted to have a baby so bad. They wanted it so bad. And rather than just saying, I don't have time for you, I've got my own stuff, Eddie brought me in. I met Dave Petrick because of Eddie. So blame it on him, Dave. His fault. (laughs) Both of them were and our friends to meet. Chuck took the day shift, Eddie took the night shift. Inviting me over and over and giving room for the gospel of Jesus Christ to have its way in my life. But the perfection of those friendships were not there because of their persistence. The perfections of those friendships were because they pointed to Christ. And I'm not saying that they sat there every time that they'd be driving, pictured Chuck sitting there and telling me all about the book of John. He didn't sit there and proclaim the gospel over and over, day after day, wishing that that time would be the time. No, they were persistent because they were present. And because they were present, they professed Christ over and over and over with their life because they lived what the Bible had done to their heart. And so when I say be persistent and be present, I'm not saying every day in your relationships preach Christ vocally, but preach Christ visibly. Have the word dwell within you in both word and deed. As James says, let the word of God dwell in you richly and live. And then in that visible demonstration, set a bar. Set a bar for what those people are going to see. And this is what I mean by setting a bar. Setting a bar by my brother's, with my brother's lives, let me rephrase this. With my brother's lives, they set a standard. They set a standard for brotherhood. Not all of you have this. And that's, it's fine. It's okay. Not everybody has a standard for fathers. Not everybody has a standard for mothers. Not everybody has a standard for brothers or sisters or family or neighbors that is good. Usually it's inadequate. 
And so when you have an inadequate bar, you can look at God and see something that will fill you up and you can say, thank you. But if you ever had a bar that you had and then you look at God and it says that I'm like that and you said, no, because I have, I have read, I remember being in my parents' basement, wrestling with the Bible for the first time and reading Hebrews chapter 2. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through something, 10 through, or 11 through 12, it says, for he who sanctifies, talking about Jesus, and those who are sanctified, talking about us, all, all have one source, talking about God. And then it says this, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And I remember reading that and saying, no, you can't be my brother, Jesus. That means too much. I don't have the ability to have that relationship with you. I am inadequate. I don't have that closeness. I don't have that understanding. Why would you love me like that? And I hope you have those relationships so that you can look at God and say, why can you love me like this? The reason he can is he is the source of every good thing. He is the creator and redeemer of the world. He can be your savior. He can be your king. He can be your God. He can be the church's husband because it's awkward for guys to say he can be my husband. He can be the church's husband. But there might be a point where you say, he can't be that. And that was me. He couldn't be my brother. It was too close. But then praying and looking, I saw that the reason I could define brotherhood so highly was because my brothers had defined brotherhood so highly. Because they were working out Christ. And so now when I look at Christ, he's so much closer. He's so much closer. So now you may be asking, where can I find a friend like that? Where can I find that, Jonathan? Where can I find an Eddie and a Chuck? I need that. I need that so bad right now. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not that easy. It's not. It's the wrong question. This is the answer. The answer is always Christ. You have to start there. You have to find Christ because any other relationship you're going to be mismeasuring if you don't know Jesus, if you actually haven't seen the extent to which he has gone, if you don't know his devotion, if you don't know your acceptance, if you don't know the reality of what God is doing, why he has done it, and why it took his death to pay our sin and his life renewed and received so that we can be with him so that when the father looks at us he doesn't see us in our failures but he sees us in the fullness of his son can i find it find it in christ and then the real question the final question how can i be a jonathan that is the question of the day not how can i find a jonathan how can i be a jonathan Stop looking for one. Be one. That's the most powerful thing. 
Find somebody who needs and be the Jonathan for them. Don't get overwhelming. Don't go up to them and say, I'm your Jonathan. But start simply. Connect with them. Make jokes. Be awkward. We're all awkward. I'm terribly awkward. It might not seem like it, but I'm terrified every time I talk to you. (laughs) Not up here because this is a safe place. The podium and the Bible keep me safe. I got Jesus. (laughs) Ask that question. Who do I get to be Jonathan for? Don't look for Jonathans. Be a Jonathan. Get close to Jesus. Get close to Jesus. And it'll be true. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your love and affection. And we thank you that you can be so much bigger than our measures. Help us to see you in the fullness of your reality and to delight in you in the fullness of grace. Open our eyes, Spirit. If we do not have you, we see nothing. So we pray now that the Holy Spirit would open eyes and open mouths and open ears to receive what you have done. We pray this all in your name. Amen. At this time, we have the delight to share in communion. There's no better time to share in communion than the realization that you have a brother in Jesus Christ who is closer than the closest friend. That's a proverb. There is a friend who stays closer than the brother, and the reality is in Christ. When we share in communion, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he paid the price for our sins and that he was raised for our justification so that when God looks upon us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are going to share in the bread and share in the cup together to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus died for us. He paid the price for our sins, and he is alive so that we know that by the Spirit, we are raised with him both now here and in in eternity with him upon our death. So I ask that as you share with us, you would hold on to the bread and you would hold on to the cup and you would wait to share together. This table, this communion is open to all who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. If you're doing that now for the first time, sharing it with us. Let it fill you. Let the reality of the gospel fill you. And just come talk to us. Go fill out a prayer card. Just just talk to us about it. Let us 